Um, so debating uh, what psalm to pick coming in, and so I said, hey, Karen, pick an intertestamental psalm for us. Said, There's no such thing as an intertestamental psalm. So I said, so pick something intertestamental-ish. And uh, so I could pick one, which I think 76 is kind of intertestamental-ish, but I figured I'd ask you guys, what psalm do you want to open with this morning? 70. 70? Okay. You have it ready, Daniel? Give us a second to turn to it so we can follow along. Go for it, bro. Oh Lord, do not delay. Psalm 72, choir master, David, for the memorial offering. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion to cease my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor for the life of my birth. Let them turn back because of their shame and say, ah, 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 May all this be rejoice and be glad in you. Do not delay. Amen. Good, good, good starter, man. That's a, a prayer for help. Which, how many could use the help of the Lord this morning? <laughs> so we're. Uh, taking a look at the intertestamental period, and uh, this isn't the intertestamental period, this is Hidden Lake and Go Fox. This is proof that Karen and I were once in shape. And, uh, Where is that? That's uh, Goat Rocks area, so it's just uh, to the south side of Mount Rainier. Um, and actually, if you go over this range of hills, you end up on White Pass, beautiful area um, highly recommend it it's a great place to go hiking about and there actually is mountain goats in there so why they call it goat rocks um, so we're looking at the intertestamental period and when I take a look at history I know that God is sovereign over all, all uh, creation he's sovereign all, over all of the events of history and we know that he is uh, working a plan um, to redeem his creation that was uh, that has fallen into destruction because of sin. And so that means to me that nothing is, is random, uh, that God has a purpose in everything that he does, and that he's involved in it all. So that, that means that um, when we look at the, the historical as it's revealed to us, we need to, uh, one, ask the question, what was the problem that was present in that period? How was humanity trying to address that problem? And how was God uh, working his plan of salvation in the, in the presence of that problem? So what is the, we, you know, we're talking about intertestamentals. That's sometimes called the 400 years of silence. It's between the last uh, writing of the prophets in the Old Testament, Malachi, written about 425 B.C. to uh, the advent of Christ, um, which is about 4 B.C. or 5 B.C., depending on how you date it. So we have that period of time, sometimes called the period of silence, which we have extra-biblical literature for, but there's, there's nothing in our canonized scripture that speaks to that period of time. So what, what was happening preceding um, this period of time and what occurred during that period of time and what were the problems that were present. I saw your hand go up, yeah. I was going to ask, concerning um, the, when, you know, Advent being before BC, yep. when it was written, you know, the, the, the amount of time after that until it was written down. Right. In the gospels, like, 425 years before that, Right. So, um, so does anybody know which was the earliest gospel? Yeah, Mark. Does anybody know when that was written? So, so those of you who study Bibles, what do you have written in the study Bible for a suggested date for Mark? 
you know that Mark was John Mark, the one the the uh, the early, pen, early as, as early as fifty. Could be around sixty-five. So right, and the reason they give it that date range is um, because so it's a uh, a first-hand witness account. The Gospels are, or it's uh, the pen behind a first-hand witness. So that means that someone who actually observed those events um, relayed this information. And in this case, with John Mark, it was probably Peter's testimony uh, as to what he experienced uh, with Jesus. And we know that Peter wasn't there in Jesus's early years, but he was he was called early um, in Jesus's ministry. That he was. That we read about that in John, where. Uh, John and, and Andrew, Peter's brother, were um, with John the Baptist, and John the Baptist pointed him uh, to Jesus, and um, Andrew went and got Peter. So we know that, that Peter very early came into uh, contact with Jesus and was there throughout his ministry, and actually then had a very um, challenging uh, mission once Jesus ascended. Into heaven, Peter went out. He was the first to go to the Gentiles before Paul. Um, he ended up being martyred in Rome. And so that's why they give that date range, because it would have been uh, at a time when they were um, recording, or, or I don't want to use the word codifying, but they were making sure that they had a, an accurate memorial um, so that the gospel, which was now going out to the Gentiles, Paul and his missions work, which started in about 49 BC, that that would have been recorded probably by the hand of Mark. And the reason they give the late date is because it might have been when um, Peter was imprisoned and uh, Mark was his amanuensis at that point. So when people were imprisoned and they ended up being martyred, um, they had people around them. Right, so, so that's the, the date there. So probably the earliest um, writings that we have are in that time period, uh, like the writing to the Galatians, the Gospel of Mark. Um, so there's a pretty good period of time where nothing was written down, at least not in that we have recorded in, in our scripture. Um, so we have to look at other pieces of literature to figure out what was going on in that period of time. So there was Jewish historians guy by the name of Josephus that kind of collected all of these various writings and had commentary on. There were other uh, intertestamental um, authors. There was the whole of what we're going to discover as the, the Greek Empire came in and conquered and expanded the whole influence of uh, Alexander and what he was trying to build in his empire and how we got the uh, Hellenization of the Jews and how they ended up writing the Septuagint and recording a bunch of stuff that's part of that intertestamental period. So we're going to take a look at those kinds of things, trying to piece together what was going on in that period of time. But again, I'll go back to what was the, the primary problem that the Jews were dealing with. So you remember last week I kind of traced in very uh, brief terms the, the kingdom uh, pre-division and post-division. Uh, post-division, you had the northern kingdom of Israel, and you had the southern kingdom of Judah, and that Israel was conquered by the Assyrians, and uh, we found that the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered by the Babylonians. And up to that point, um, this the, the Hebrew children that called themselves Israel, or called themselves Judah, um, were in, uh, they were uh, a nation. So they had a degree of independence, and their independence was under the uh, administration of a king. And we know that God intended uh, that he was the king and that there would be a delegated authority uh, to, to um, stand in his administration, that, that there are specific roles that God has ordained among men, prophet, priest, and king. And that in that nation condition, that they had uh, a king. 
But at the, the time that Assyria conquered the northern kingdom, they no longer had any kings in the north. And at the time that Babylon conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, they no longer had any kings. We found that the last king um, that was a legitimate king went into captivity, Jehoiachin. And that um, we know that his descendants, through the, the line of David, ended up being some of those that went back into the land to settle, and they're actually in the line of Christ. In fact, you read about that king in the genealogy of Matthew. So when you're looking at the um, Matthew, you'll actually see Jehoiachin, or sometimes called Jeconiah, that's another name for him, um, listed in that genealogy. So you see that there's a preservation of the line of the king, or the line of David, because there was a specific promise made that Messiah would come through the line of David. And so we know that that had to be preserved. But the rule and administration had been moved so that there was no longer um, a king in Israel or in Judah. Daniel? Uh, what was the heritage? So if you don't have a king then um, you're under the rule of someone else. So you're a conquered people. And uh, the Jewish nation, I'll call them, the remnants of Judah that went into captivity and then ended up going back into the land, rebuilding the temple and the, the city of Jerusalem, um, they did that underneath uh, the authority of another king, either the king of Persia or um, the Greeks had authority over the Jews. At the end of the period of uh, the Greeks, when the Romans came in, the Romans had rule over that territory, and they allowed uh, one who claimed to be uh, of a proper heritage to be a king. Herod was one of those. He was actually from Idumea, so he was from uh, Edom, in his, if you actually traced his lineage. So he wasn't from one of the 12 tribes in the classic sense of, so he, he couldn't claim to be uh, in the line of David uh, and be in rule over Judah. But he did, because he was a, he was a big man. In fact, Herod, you read about Herod, he was an incredible builder, stuff that he built still stands today. Um, he, so he understood engineering, he understood chemistry, he understood physics, all of those kinds of things. You know, we think we're pretty smart today. Um, go to uh, Caesarea by the sea, and you'll see um, concrete that um, Herod the Great poured underneath the, the ocean waters in order to make foundations so that he could extend out his palace. Uh, yeah, I mean, he understood chemistry. He pioneered some of the techniques in, in engineering those days. So whether he was that smart or he had people that were that smart, uh, probably the latter, he was, a, he was a big man. And he said, you know, I understand these Jews. I'm one of them. I can be their king. And so he asserted himself, but he did that under um, the rule of the Romans. So the Romans, the Romans allowed that. How did the Greek uh, into the heart of the matter, so we'll get to that. <laughs> but we need to back up a little bit. From what I've read, uh, because the Judah went into captivity, uh, at, at that point, even though they were under a king or under a foreign rule, their priests and their prophets tended to be their leaders. Yes. And, uh, uh, that went on until till the first great <coughs> Begin to let people go back to their homeland. Right. And in that time, um, the rise of the scribes, as, such as Ezra, yep. uh, and uh, I think his name right now, uh, Zerubbabel, yep. Zerubbabel. Uh, became a governor, and, and that tended to be kind of the way uh, things were being led at that point, especially for the, the Jews. Right. That's when they became called the Jews. Right, exactly. 
And uh, uh, that went on to basically the, the priest rose to become the leader of, of Judah in that time. And he, he became both the politician and the, the priest. Right. In, in that time period. So and they, and they became very powerful. Government, uh, and that, that went through that intertestamental. Yep. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly that's exactly correct. So in the, the so you've got these people that were taken uh, into captive and they were having to be re-enculturated. They were having to absorb new culture, and that's what the Babylonians desired. But they one of the big problems was is that they had lost um, their place where they would commune with God. They lost the temple. And further, when you go from being a, a nation that has some autonomy to being a conquered people, um, there's a problem of preserving your identity, right? So, and you, you mentioned that they became known as the Jews in this period of time, and that's all part of that trying to maintain identity as to who they are. And, uh, and what you see in order to preserve that identity is emergence of of exactly what you just described. So, who would be the authorities within the Jewish people? It would be the the priests, and, and the scribal office started emerging very powerfully at that point in time. To the to the um, to the point where you get uh, scribes like Ezra, <coughs> and as you read through Ezra, and how that whole um, you know it. Ezra follows 2 Chronicles, and 2 Chronicles ends with uh, the king of Persia allowing the people to go back into the land. So you follow the whole history as a chronology up through um, the destruction of uh, Jerusalem, the captivities of the kings, um, and then doesn't say much about that time in Babylon, under Babylonian rule, we get that in different places. But then it goes into uh, the king of Persia, who conquered Babylon. And we know that in that period, when they were in Babylon, they we read this from Ezekiel and from others, that they were actually um, settling and, and becoming part of that culture. So they were being affected by the gods of the land. They were being affected by the culture and practices of the people. And they, what they did is they kind of um, pulled back into, uh, to preserve their identity. And this is about the time when the concept of synagogue started emerging. So, who knows what a synagogue is? Meeting place. Pardon? Meeting place. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's a meeting place. <clears throat> but it was a meeting with purpose. It was a meeting for uh, the purpose of education because they wanted through oral tradition and through that which had been written down by the priests and the scribes to carry forward that identity of the people and to carry forward um, that cultic practice of the people because the place where they practiced had been destroyed. The temple had been destroyed and they were now no longer in the land. So in order to uh, preserve their identity, you see the emergence of the scribes um, as a, a position of authority and power within the meeting places. And they started uh, gathering together. And it became more formal as time went on, to the point where synagogue became a, a standard part of the culture. But that really kind of happens uh, as an understanding of what they would think of a synagogue today. That didn't happen until after Ezra. Right? So Ezra was a scribe. <clears throat> he writes about in, in the first part of Ezra, the first six chapters, he writes about that return uh, in order to rebuild um, the temple in Jerusalem. So he's looking at uh, from 537 B.C., the first return under uh, Sheshazar, probably not pronouncing it right, uh, Zerubbabel as the governor in that area in order, or the leader of the people. Uh, in order to rebuild the temple. And so you read about that in the first part of Ezra, <clears throat> all the way to um, actually 
accomplishing that task. So they started the task. <coughs> we know that as the people went, they, they returned to the land, and actually in fairly small numbers. So they were taken in small numbers. Um, the, the population had, had uh, significantly decreased as a result of being taken captive and the conquest of the land of Israel. And so when they went back, they were a very small group. You know, 50, 60, 70, 80,000 people. So it wasn't a lot of people that went back uh, in order to reestablish the temple in Jerusalem. But they did it with the king's support. They got opposition, but they, had, they were having to resettle their whole lives. They had to resettle wherever they got taken as part of the, um, the deportation. They're now resettling back in the land. So they got really busy with their own houses. And uh, that's what the prophet Haggai came to uh, challenge them about. It's like, you're sitting here building your houses and making them right, and you're letting the house of God, which is your place of communion with him, um, be a disgrace. So he challenged them to finish the temple. And you read about that in Ezra, um, how they actually finished it, and it took them a while to do it, but they finished the temple and then reconsecrated it. And then you read about Ezra himself. <clears throat> so that starts in uh, chapter 7. You get a, a first-hand account uh, from Ezra. And what I'll say is in between the gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7 is when Esther takes place. So if you kind of want to know the chronology, you have uh, one of Jewish heritage um, become the queen in Persia, one of the queens in Persia. And so that was, uh, as we understand, we read through Esther, that was actually God's uh, provision and protection for this nation. So God was working to preserve their identity. He was working to um, preserve that which he had chosen corporately as a nation to represent him in the world. And he did that through Esther. Um, so you said earlier that they became known as the Jews in this kind of time period. Right. And is that, is that a derivative of Judah? Yeah, it so, is. But it's not just the southern kingdom. Well, actually it is pretty much. It is? Yeah, so the northern kingdom <clears throat> completely lost its identity under the Assyrians. So the Assyrians, their idea was to intermix the peoples that they had conquered. So they would um, they would bring the people out of the land and they would resettle new people in the land. Uh, and then they would mix those that they had taken out with some other culture that they had conquered, right? Um, but they had a problem with uh, the areas, the hill country uh, part of Israel. And so that would be the area of um, what became Samaria. Samaritans, and that in that hill country, the uh, the lions were attacking the people, and they were so they had critters coming out that were causing harm, and uh, they figured because the Syrians and the way that their system of gods worked is that they weren't appeasing the god of the hills, so they brought the priests back in uh, because they figured, oh well, we need, we're just not worshiping the god of the hills. Right, so we'll bring the priests back in, and they uh, so they brought back in and reestablished um, the cultic practice around the Torah, the first five books of the law, and that became the Samaritans. But they were mixed people, and that's why the pure tribe in the south of Judah didn't like that mixed tribe in the north of the Samaritans, but. Under the Assyrians, they pretty much lost their identity in the north. That doesn't mean that you still don't read about those those tribes. I mean, you still have Naphtali, you still have um, Asher, you still have parts of Galilee, right, are, are probably still have people from those tribes, but they kind of lost that national identity. And last week you said that a lot of the Jews went to Babylon and was, you know, out of Iraq. Yep. And yet, that's a Muslim country that hates Jews. Yeah. They're still there. 
Um, so there are still Jews. There are still Jews in Persia, and I I, uh, I tried to get some demographic information because I made an, an assertion last week that the greatest population of Jews at a point in history was in the Persian Empire. Pardon? Persia would be Iran. Yeah, Iran. Well, in Iraq, that whole area up through Turkey, and you know the way that we divide it, Persia had a pretty extensive empire. Um, so there was a point in history when that was the largest population of the dispersion. Um, in recent history, that's not the case. They're down around, I think, 6 or 7%. But of those worldwide are in that. Are still claiming to be Jews. Yeah, and there are still Jews in... Uh, well, this is a Muslim country, right? right? Yeah. So you don't, you don't wear your Jew flag on your house. You don't have your Star David there on porch. Because for one thing... There are those that are um, by heritage, right, so your nationality, Jewish. But that doesn't mean they're practicing the, the cultic practice of the Jews, the religion of the Jews, or that they would even identify that way. But they're still from that heritage, right? So, and that would be the remnants of, of uh, those that Esther preserved. I mean, they had businesses, they had families, they, had, you know, they became part of that culture, they intermarried which was a problem, and Ezra said, hey, intermarriage is a problem, right, because you're not preserving that national identity. And, and that national identity is for a purpose. You get to Terry's point, though, isn't it fair to assume that the majority of the peoples from the northern kingdom, the Israelites, ultimately were assimilated and only became Muslim? Yes, yes. I would say that's probably true, because um, Islam does not spread in the way that, for example, Christianity spreads through attraction. When people understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us as Christ and that real life, true life, is in him, then those that desire life are drawn to him. Right. So there is a, a calling, a wooing that happens as part of the salvation experience. So when we looked at the order of salvation, God's calling preceded um, our regeneration, conversion experience. And so that's different than Islam. Islam, although there may be some attractive features to it, just like there are attractive features to um, uh, what are these guys down, uh, down, the, down the street? Mormons. Yeah. Um, so they have attractive features, right? And I remember when I was in western Colorado and they'd have their family commercials. It's like, yeah, I want that, right? So there are still attractive features, but that's not how people are truly being converted in their heart to that. They're being converted through law. And that's, that's a result. I mean, when you look at how the Persians emerged and why they were superior to the Babylonians, they were superior because they had uh, the rule of law. And that it was their law. In fact, the king could not violate the law. Right? You read that in Daniel. Um, the, the Persian king wanted to spare Daniel when he was thrown into the lion's den. But he couldn't. Because the law wouldn't allow it. So law was, was uh, the prominent uh, aspect of that uh, culture. And that's how people become Muslim today as they um, place themselves under that law. It isn't attractive where you give your heart because we love because he first loved us. Right? So there's a difference. Daniel? Um, what about people that become Muslim because they're in a geographical area that the Muslims basically just eradicate all other forms of ideology? In that yeah. Area? Yeah, so there's... There are uh, 100% Muslim countries where there is no other uh, religion practiced. And that is by law, right? And if you break that law, you do so at the pain of death. Um, they, they will take your life because that's the law. You're, you're Muslim. Now, that's similar to when I was in Jerusalem and I went into the Christian quarter. And my understanding of Christianity is this heart conversion. It's a, it's a heart condition not a nationality, right? 
And I'm in the Christian Quarter, and I'm just assuming that they call it the Christian Quarter because everybody in that quarter has got this heart condition. It's like, no, I go up to this guy, and I say, so tell me about your Christianity. Oh, yeah, I'm Christian. My dad is Christian. My grandpa's Christian. In fact, we can trace our Christianity all the way back to the first century. He was speaking about national, uh, that, that lineage, not about uh, a personal faith. Right? It's like, oh, okay. So there are probably a lot of Muslims like that. They're that way because that's where they grew up. What is a Celtic Christian? So, uh, so if you look at Christianity, so you're talking about the, the Celts in the, the north? Celtic. Oh, Coptic. Got it. Okay, so, so if you look at the, uh, uh, the Christian church, uh, became the state religion. So we understand that when Christ came, he came to save the world. And that there are those that under, came to understand that in a very profound way, had this conversion experience, and there was just this literal explosion of, uh, of faith in the first, second, third century. But that was uh, countercultural. In other words, they were going against the practice of the land that they were in, um, and the culture of the day. So under Roman rule, it was polytheistic, and they needed to place themselves uh, subserviently under the Roman god of the emperor, right? And that became a problem. And sometimes there were great persecutions in that period of time. It was not the state religion. There uh, became a Roman ruler, Constantine, that made Christianity the state religion. And um, at that point, there was only one Christian church. But shortly after that, the church split into a West and an East. And part of that split also uh, affected Northern Africa. because, uh, And this has to do with this intertestamental period and the influence of the Greeks. And that Hellenistic practice and, and uh, preservation of the Jewish heritage. Well, there were those that were Hellenistic uh, Greek Jews that converted to uh, Christianity, and yet their cultural peace was still there in the northern part of Africa. And so you got kind of these, these areas of uh, significant Christian uh, growth, east, west, northern Africa, Alexandria. And uh, that's where the Coptic uh, Christian practice came from, was from that early split. And then what happened is, is that uh, people kind of drill down on, you know, I believe this is a divide for issue in theology, so I'm going to divide and I'm going to, you know, this is how we're going to build our churches, this is what we're going to do. So the East and the West was a big deal about icons and that how, um, how we honor God through being the image of God, right? And the West said, no, it's different than that. So there was actually a split. These were divide for issues. You have the same kind of things in Coptic. Christians. Is that answer? I mean, that's very general. Yeah. Well, they're being slaughtered today, so, and persecuted. Yeah. And, and there, there are all different, um, I, I'll use the word brands of Christianity, and, and we're a brand of Christianity, right? We're Baptists, conservative Baptists. That means that we have uh, particular theological distinctives. If you look at the the core distinctives of a Christian, um, those are common among the different uh, denominations or different brands, um, and so they're persecuted for that. Those core distinctives. Um, they may also be persecuted for their cultural distinctives. You know, they look different, they dress different, they have different prayer practices. So that may cause them to come in conflict with the culture and be persecuted as well. Um, so when we read about the persecution of the church, the core practice of Christianity, and the core beliefs of Christianity, um, that's occurring worldwide across all these different brands. Um, but sometimes it's just because of culture. I hope that answers your question. So that might be an issue of study down the road. 
Well, we can do church history. That's a really interesting Well, study. not just church history, but the, the fact that the early church was persecuted and still grew. And yes. A lot of the New Testament books relate to that. Um, and of course, it's quite worldwide. Right. And many people think that what's uh, occurring now is uh, more of a return to, rather than Christianity being um, state-protected, we may not be a Christian state, but it's still protected. So um, it's not illegal to be a Christian in this country. It, we're moving to a point in time, like the first century church, where it's not state protected. In fact, it's state persecuted. And uh, we may be moving into an era where to be a Christian and to identify yourself as a Christian might cost you your life. Or it might cost you your job. So those kinds of things are happening, and I think that you know. But that's when the church flourishes, you know. Why does the church you, flourish? You weed out all the people who aren't really committed. Well, it clarifies commitment. That's that's absolutely true. When things are easier, it can kind of kind of coast a little bit. So what we're reading about in the intertestamental period is really how those Jews were fighting. Or their national identity to the point of wanting to reconsecrate um, the temple un under the desecration of Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek, right? And they wanted to take it back. The Maccabees wanted to take that back. And we're going to read about that um, and reconsecrate that temple worship because two things were really important. When you read about this in the final prophetic writings, one was temple worship or communion with God. I'll take it to a different understanding. Um, communion with God, face to face, and that occurred through the cultic practice, which included the sacrifices, the, the priesthood as the mediator between man and God. Um, and uh, that, was, that was the number one thing. And the number two thing was uh, national identity. Not in the sense of being a nation autonomous, but as being a chosen people. Right? Because what is distinct about the, the Hebrew children, the descendants of Jacob? What is distinct? That they are distinct people because of promise of God. They are distinct not because they are good or because um, they have any inherent you know, coolness or value or anything like that. In fact, God said, you're pretty stinky, but... You're, you're uh, distinct because I have chosen you for a particular purpose. So we understand that there's a corporate identity of the people that being chosen by God for his purpose. And that that purpose is that the whole world might be saved through the revelation of God. It just so happens Jesus was a Jew. Right? He was of the tribe of Judah. He was a descendant of David. So th there's that purpose, but then there's a further purpose that even in the final days, God is going to use this people group to present himself before the whole world as the true sovereign over all creation. And we read about that. We read about that in Revelation, right? That when it comes to the final plague, guess who's there? This people that is that people have been trying to destroy for a long time have been able to preserve their national identity, their chosenness. So when you look at, and I, I'm looking at the time here, we may or may not get through Ezra, um, but if you look at that progression of the last three prophets, Haggai talking about getting that temple worship restored, building the house of God, the place of communion. Zechariah, the promise of the national identity. And then Malachi, the people's complaint. Right? So you're going to hear about this this morning. In, uh, uh, Pastor Bob's going to be teaching great sermons, and I think he's doing uh, Malachi this morning. Um, but if you look at Malachi, Malachi starts out um, as the people's complaint. So here they are. Uh, they, we tend to personally get distracted from all of these things about what God is doing. 
right? So we need to understand, though, God has a purpose. He has a, a plan. We read about that last week, that that whole point of the captivity was part of God's plan. That he had a purpose for these people and that his intent was to bless them, to bring wholeness and life, right? And that that's true uh, universally, but it was specifically in Jeremiah as a promise to the Jews, right? And when we get to Malachi, we read the complaint. The oracle of the uh, word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say... How have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Now, books that start out that way, wow. All this tough theology right in the first couple of verses. Loved Jacob, hated Esau. So if I take that personally... That means that God might hate me. And he might love somebody else. I don't have control over his sovereign will. So that's his sovereign will. Right? So that means that there are some that God chooses and some that he doesn't. And what I would say is that Malachi um, is addressing corporate identity issues. That when he says, I chose Jacob and not Esau is that his purpose and plan is to be fulfilled through the descendants of Jacob, not through the descendants of Esau. And in that sense, um, I and this is, you know, Karen and I go through this all the time, right? I, I wake up every morning and I say, thank you for choosing me today. You did choose me, right? <laughs> that's, that's pretty much the, the, the opening statement. And the reason why is because I, my understanding of love has to do with choice. It doesn't have to do with feeling. God may or may not feel good about me today. You know, I may have boogers in my beard, and he says, hey, help the boogers out of your beard. You know? um, but his choice of me is not affected by my what I bring to him. It's not a check affected by my personal worth. The personal value and worth that I have is because he chose me. Right? So there's a personal understanding of that. And we certainly personally want to be chosen by God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that's personal. Right? We're talking about personal salvation. But there's this idea of corporate as well. That he, uh, that everyone who believes in him would be not die or not perish, but ever have everlasting life. He sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it, right? But yes. why then would he um, lay waste um, to, or I laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals in the desert? Yes. Why are you... Why? why, are you why? And so what's, what's happening is, what you're wrestling with is that this is personal. Those people that live there are having judgment pronounced on them personally. They're going to lose their house that they think that they own. They're going to lose their life that they think they own, right? And that's a personal thing, right? And what I'm saying is, no, 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 this is a corporate thing. That God did not choose Esau as the, uh, the part, the, the fulfillment of his plan to bring life. That doesn't mean that Esau is unimportant personally. But corporately, as a nation, that's not through, the salvation of the world does not come through Esau. It comes through Jacob. And when he says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, he's talking about choice. He's not talking about emotion. He's not talking about how, how God personally feels about me. Because God personally feels about me some way, and hopefully it's positive. But... I have a relationship with God, right? And I'm accountable to him. And I'm trying to grow into the image of his son in whom he is well pleased, right? So that's the personal thing that's going on. And that has to do with my sanctification and ultimately my glorification, actually becoming as Christ is in the sense of his eternal life is my life, right? Um, so that's a personal thing. That's different than what I think Malachi is talking about here. I think he's talking about corporate identity. But he bridges the two. 
So he, he convicts people about their personal walk. He says, you guys are divorcing your wives for no reason. There is no reason for what you're doing. What you're doing is against the heart of God. I don't choose that. I hate that. Hate meaning not choosing. Right? So we understand that there is a personal overlay to this, but when I read that he loved Jacob and he hated Esau, and that Esau is not the place of life, but Jacob is, I'm taking a step back and I'm looking at that corporately. So, so if you're not the place of life, if you're not the chosen, if you're not the way of salvation, then there's nothing else but laid to waste and jackets on. Correct. I would say there are a lot of nations in the world, and there is only one through whom salvation comes. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So that means that through the descendants of Jacob, Judah, David, to Jesus. And that's the genealogy that you get in Matthew. It traces a genealogy in fourteens, uh, three 14s, which three times 14 is 42 is the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Douglas Adams. But, <laughs> that, 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 neither here nor there. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But... Um, that is through a single, um, a single choice of God. He chose Jacob. That's the plan to bring life. He did not choose Esau. Jacob have I loved, having to do with choice. Esau I have hated. Now I would suggest that Esau and Jacob were both pretty. Pretty unable, pretty pretty unclean guys, right? I mean, Jacob is stealing; he's deceiving. His name even means deceiver. You know, the one who's a heel grabber, um, and he has to have his name changed as part of the plan of God. Jacob comes to God face to face at Peniel, right? That's the that's what the name means, face of God. Comes face to face with God. And he wrestles with him. And in the course of that wrestling, where Jacob says, I will not give up. I desire the blessing of God. And he is he has set his face towards God, just as Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And in that moment, God cripples him and changes his name to Israel, one who struggles with God. Yisrael. Because in corporately, it's not a citizenship um, in, uh, you know, in that, in Israel, or in Jesus, right, through, through belief, so that we are not, so that our problem being that all the nations of the world are chosen by God, that um, then we speak that part corporately as a nation or a citizenship in the kingdom of Repeat that? Okay. I'm not sure I really call it. Uh, Jesus said that um, you must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yes. So that's a heart condition. There's a spiritual birth. Right. So then, so then a group of people who have been born again would be a, um, a corporate group of people, right? Yeah, they're called the church. Right. <laughs> um, well, then the church, then, these people, if they're persecuted, right, say by the state... Um, then how well how did they and how would we say for example if we didn't have the freedom of religion and or you know the persecution of it how did they worship how did it spread so quickly if they weren't allowed to um, they weren't allowed to you know put signs up and read right, and, right, and all that right well one they did put signs up put little fishes but uh, <laughs> for the loaves and fishes because that was a story that was told as part of the oral oral uh, tradition that was carried on. But um, it's the kind of a deal where, okay, I'm at work, and all sorts of bad stuff is happening around me. I mean, occasionally we have bad days, right? I was uh, telling Alex on Friday night, trying to make you feel guilty here, um, that 
and he was sharing a bad day where a vehicle that he had um, given out as a demo caught fire, and it was totally destroyed and consumed. It was a $190,000 loss. And he failed to get the signature from the person that was demoing that they were taking uh, custody of that vehicle. And even though they knew that the right thing to do was to own it and, and have their insurance pay for it, they chose not to. So it came back onto him personally. He said, you know, that was a bad day. That was not funny. And uh, I said, yeah, I had one of those about a year and a half ago. I was at Grand Coulee, and I dropped 2,000 megawatts, which is about three-quarters of the city of Seattle in power. And uh, it was a bad day. They call that, that's a green light day. So you have red light, green light. Red light means it's energized. Green light means it's not. And so I got a little green sticker on my hard hat, a badge of shame because of a bad day. So we have bad days. And in the course of bad days, what do you do when I was the one that hit the button that through, not through negligence or um, anything on my part, but I just happened to be the finger that pushed the button, a system malfunctioned and I cleared bus. And uh, what would you do in that instant? I can think of a lot of words I could have said. <laughs> And, and I didn't. I didn't say those things. I may have thought those things, but I didn't say those things. And the people around me noticed. They noticed what happened on a bad day. And months later, a guy that was there with me came up to me and said, you know, you were rock steady when that happened. I've seen you be rock steady repeatedly. Why is that? Why do these things not destroy you? You could have lost your job there. Um, why does that not destroy you? When somebody loses uh, a, a close member of their family to cancer and they're rock steady, or that voice of someone dying of cancer is proclaiming God to their last breath, when they're rock steady, that affects people. People notice. So whether you say it, or scribble a little fish, whatever, people know. And that's attractive. Because they see life, and they want life. So then how do you get together with those people in your off time and party with them? So the way, the way that it happened was this guy made sure that we were alone. We were in a car going to lunch, and nobody else was in the car. And he asked, he said, so what's up with you? And then I got the opportunity to tell him. Right? Um, wasn't a plan opportunity, that's how the early church spread. That the life in you, the light, the salt, the savor, right, is so attractive that people will risk their personal peril if they want that. They'll say, you know, I'm not going any further until you tell me where life is. I actually saw that when I was in a prison uh, not that I was in prison. And that there was a, a young man who was risking everything because the whole population knew that he was violating the, the code of the, of the block by asking, what's up with you? Asking for life. And he was absolutely insisting. He said, I'm not moving. I'm not going back to my cell until you tell me how I can be saved. That's what happened in the first century. That's what happened in the second century. That's what will happen in the end times. And I think that... Um, so it won't be comfortable to be a Christian. But there will be a lot of Christians. There will be a lot of testimony. And you read about that in Revelation. Millions that will be martyred because they chose to, to um, not give up the life that that God had so, at such great cost, won for them. He actually, the creator of everything, actually entered into creation, took that which separated us from him, an eternal separation, only he could address it, took that upon himself to actually conquer death. That's what he did. He, and we were, and on Friday night we're reading through uh, Leviticus and we're talking about atonement and the atoning sacrifice, the three aspects of that. 
aspect of appeasing God's righteous anger about sin. He is really ticked off because sin is bringing death where there should be life. It's destroying where there should be created blossoms, right? And so he's, he's angry. The atonement appeases that anger. Um, it also covers that which makes me unpresentable and of no value to God. When he looks at me, he looks at the righteousness of his son. And it also redeems. It pays a ransom that I could never pay. It reconciles me, makes the account such that I can come and be in communion with God. That's what happened. Right? And I am so grateful that God chose me individually. And I am so grateful that he chose Jacob and not Esau. Because it was through Jacob that my redemption would come. And then he challenges me personally. He says, you don't live as a child sitting in the gutter. Right? You live as a child in the, the palace of the king. Change your life. Change your clothes. And so there's a personal challenge in all of this. And that's what was happening in the intertestamental period. So I'm going to wrap this back into intertestament, right? We've been talking very generally about a lot of topics. This was the problem that the intertestamental period was going to address through three different national conquerors or empires under uh, Persian, Greek, and Roman. We're going to see that the people are fighting to keep that communion with God through temple worship. And what their response was and what God's response was. And the people are fighting to keep that national identity because they, some, I'm sure, understood what God's plan of redemption was. We know that because he shares that in the Old Testament. He says, you know, there's, you think that there are none that, that worship God, that truly have a heart for him. He's saying this to uh, Elijah. He says, no, 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 I got, I got 6,000 by the way. You don't even know anything about it. So, they're fighting to keep that national identity, and I think that there were those that understood. In fact, we know that because when Jesus was presented at the temple for his priests, that there was a prophet there that had been looking for that day and declared it. And so, that's what the intertestamental period is about. And we're going to look at how culturally things change, because it's really easy to get sideways in and to get caught up in the world in this, and to get caught up in religious practice in this, even by good people like the high priest, even by good people like Ezra, which this is what it says about Ezra. This was my part of my call to ministry. Ezra 7.10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinance in Israel. Right? So there's three parts of that. Is it to lead to to practice and to and to teach? That's what we're doing right here. You guys are the teachers. I'm just helping you along. So let's go ahead and close here in prayer. Lord, um, incredible challenge in your word and uh, in understanding what was occurring in this 400 year gap. Lord, we know that you were preparing the way such that uh, any confusion about what the law was could be set right by your declaration. That any uh, misunderstanding about your redemptive plan would be corrected. And, and that those, even though they misunderstood all the way to your death on the cross, they came to understand in your resurrection. And Lord, uh, we're just so thankful that you've given us this opportunity to take a look at at uh, this part of your truth, Lord, uh, and how it affects both the Old and the New Testament and ties us together. Lord, we thank you for all of this. Lord, we lift to you, Bob, this morning as he presents um, your word from Malachi. Lord, help, help it to continue challenging us personally as we understand what you're about um, in the large plan of saving humanity and give us the opportunity to participate in that. Lord, through being different, um, even if it may cost us. 
that's that's the hard part of work is that we don't ask for trial. Um, we know that it comes to us. And give us faith in that moment. And give us strength in that moment. Lord, we thank you for all of this. In your name, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your provision, your protection, and your service to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of this in your name we pray.